you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Uh, Well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4, I'm really excited. Uh, It's been several months since I've been in the book of Ephesians, and just thought since I had the opportunity this morning to preach, I would uh, jump back into uh, my seemingly ongoing series uh, in Ephesians. How Most of you weren't probably with me when we were walking through the first several verses of chapter 4, so I just want to walk through a quick review uh, just so that we all kind of have a context of where this is all going. But I want to focus specifically in verses 4 through 6. And so if you have your Bibles, I just want to read Ephesians 4, uh, just verses 1 through 3 uh, this morning. Uh, this is what Paul writes. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing bearance, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then look at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Uh, it's interesting, the book of Ephesians is split rather nicely down the middle. The first three chapters Uh, Paul is looking at this idea of being in Christ and what does that position look like in the reality of our lives. But in chapters 4 through 6, Paul takes that concept of being in Christ and says, all right, let's flesh this out. Let's talk about this practically. Uh, Let's go down down to your street, down to your job, in your families, and let's talk about what does it mean for you to live in Christ every moment of your day. And so chapters 4, 5, and 6 is like the practical outflow, if you will, of the reality of being in Christ. And so it's interesting as you get in these first several verses, uh, Paul is, is kind of making that transition from the theoretical or the concept of being in Christ to actually applying it practically uh, in our lives. And you'll notice in verse 1, he says that you are to live or walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And we recently walked this through with the students, but it's interesting that Paul says, Whoa, you have a calling on your life. Isn't that encouraging? That it doesn't matter who you are, if you are a believer, there is a distinct divine calling in your life. Now, there are several different callings that are mentioned in Scripture. Uh, for example, there are specific callings that God gives in Scripture. But that's not this idea. So this idea is not like, oh, I'm called to be a plumber, or I'm called to be a teacher, or I'm called to be a missionary, or I'm called to be a circus clown, or whatever it is that you have a calling in your life for. Uh, That's not this idea. Uh, This idea is that every Christian, regardless of who you are, regardless of your profession, has this calling. And the calling that he's talking about in the context is Jesus. Isn't that awesome? And there's a divine calling in your life and it is the person of Christ, that your life is to look like Jesus, that you are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And then Paul says that you are to walk worthy of that calling. Uh, that word worthy has this idea of a, of a scale. So I don't know if you ever if you imagine like those old uh, pictures of a scale, right? There's like a tray on this side and a tray on this side, and there's some 
chains that go up to a top piece, and you put something on this side, and it just kind of goes chunk, right? And then you put something on this side, and it... And the idea is, if, if I have, say, a piece of silver, right, and I put it on one side, well, how much does that silver weigh? Well, I, I put a little one-pound rock on this side, and then I put a little bit, you know, a half-pound rock, and I, I just see what... And once they are level, that's the word worthy in the passage. And so that's the, that's the Greek understanding of, word, of, of the word worthy. So if you think about what Paul is saying then, he says, we're going to take your life and put it on one side, and then we're going to put your calling on the other side. But your calling is Jesus. So I don't know how you would level out, but if, if my life was on one side and Jesus was on the other side, at least in my life, and I'm presuming yours too, uh, that you are not equal to Jesus. Is that a fair statement? Are you awake? <laughs> that, that if you're to look at your life and Jesus, I, I, think, I think there's something greater about him. Just presuming. So how on earth then, and this is the whole, we've been walking through this a whole variety of sessions in these first three, first three verses, but how, how on earth am I to walk, live, worthy of that calling, which is Christ. And the phenomenal reality in the passage is that I, in and of myself, will never be able to look like, talk like, think like, act like my calling, who's Christ. That there's no way that I can pull this off in myself. So the only option I have then for my life to be worthy of the calling with which I have been called is for that calling to get inside of my life and pull off in my life the very thing that I could, in and of myself, could not do. Does that make sense? We call that Christianity, by the way. And it's the reality of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's the reality of Christ who lives in you, which has been Paul's whole point in the first three chapters. He says your life is in Christ, and Christ is in you. And as such, the very life that you and I are called to as believers that you and I cannot live in and of ourselves, suddenly has become possible. Why? Because the outside God has come to indwell your life on the inside, and he's able to take his life and so infuse it into your life that now your life is worthy of that calling, which is himself. So this is not about your talent. This is not about your wisdom. This is not about your anything. This is all about him and what he wants to do in and through you. Isn't that phenomenal? And so Paul says, you have a calling on your life. Whoa, it's Jesus. And you are to walk worthy of that calling, which means you need him. Because you, in and of yourself, again, cannot do this by yourself. So would you allow the God of the universe to so get inside of you that he begins to remove anything that doesn't look like him? Which is Paul's point in Romans 8.29. That he is going to conform you to the image of Christ. And the word conform uh, if you want a, a modern-day illustration, is I, I take a jar of Play-Doh, right? You take Play-Doh. You have played with Play-Doh. Okay, you take Play-Doh, and you take one of those molds, like those cheesy plastic molds that look like something, and you shove the Play-Doh into the mold, and anything that doesn't fit into that mold, you cut away. Why? Because you want the Play-Doh to be conformed to the image of that mold, 
And Paul says in Romans 8, 29, do you know what God's doing with you? He's taking all of your circumstances and all of your situations, and he's taking all the, all the stuff that's happening in your life, and he's using it, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. He's using everything in your life to press you into a mold so that you would look like Jesus, so that you'd be conformed to the very image of Christ. That's amazing, folks. And God's heart and desire is that you would live, walk, worthy of this calling with which you've been called, which is himself. Now, as you get into verses 2 and 3 then, he's talking about the reality of this life of Christ. He's not given an exhaustive list, but he's beginning to list some of the things that are the outflow of this calling. That that if, if you're going to walk worthy of this calling, well then what is the evidence of that? There should be things that just start flowing out of your life. And as you look at it, he starts to list things like humility, he lists uh, meekness or, or gentleness, which contained in that idea is this idea uh, of a willingness to suffer, that you're actually willing to endure difficulty. He talks about patience, which means you're enduring that difficulty for a very long time. Doesn't this sound exciting? Uh, he talks about that you are to show or bear with one another in love, that, that uh, this idea of uh, you are to put up with something, that you are to endure with people, that you are to hold them up is the idea. And then he says, at the very end of verse 3, he says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That, that if I am full of the life of Christ, one of the realities of that is that I am going to be diligent, I am going to be guarded to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do you realize that Biblically, it seems like it is impossible for you to be a Christian without the people around you. And in other words, we need each other, that we are a body. And I cannot somehow become a recluse and hide myself away from from the other believers and say, okay, uh, I'm going to be the Lone Ranger Christian. That somehow the reality of Christianity is that I have to rub shoulders with you, which drives me crazy. Because, well, you know who you are, <laughs> and you know who I am, and we, we tend to sanctify each other. We, we rub each other, and, and we have to, and you have that weird personality, and you do that one thing. You know what it is. I just, it just drives me crazy. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are visitors, and you're like, how do you know? <laughs> uh, because I know your children. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. Never mind. I won't go down the student, I won't go down the student road. <clears throat> but, it, but you realize we all have weird quirks. We all have odd personalities. We all have, and it, it's interesting, in the body of Christ, we have the joy of bearing with one another in love and keeping the unity. Which means this is a fight, folks. For whatever reason, unity doesn't just come naturally. You have to fight for this thing. That we have to guard and we have to protect it and we have to be willing to hold this thing up and care and love and serve each other. And that's just not here in a feat. That's like every page of the New Testament is screaming that idea. And do you know how hard it is to keep that? Do you know how hard it is to 
to, to overlook and love your issues and be like, all right, Lord, work on them. Oh, dear Lord, work on me. <laughs> you know? And yet it's this beautiful reality that God is using your life in me and he's using my odd quirks in you to conform us to the image of Christ. And yet it's as we all come together in this beautiful unity of a body, somehow that showcases Jesus in a way that I cannot show Jesus on my own. And Paul says that if I am to be in Christ and I'm walking worthy of this calling, then the reality is, is that I should be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now, I want to come to our passage. That was all review. Uh, in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul then talks about this unity idea. He talks about this body concept. He talks about, okay, what is this going to look like then if we're all gathering together in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? So let me just read verses 4 through 6 again. Paul says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Love that passage. That's beautiful. A couple of things just to note really quick. Uh, when you look at this passage, verse 4 through 6, and a lot of scholars are arguing, you know, was it a, one of the early creeds of the, of the early church? Maybe so, maybe not. Uh, but, but it is interesting as you begin to look at this, uh, there are a few realities when you, when you come to this passage. One is you'll notice that there are two sets of three with a final declaration in the passage. Uh, look at this. He says, there is one body, one spirit, and one hope. So that's like one grouping. Then he says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's another group. And then he finishes up with this big finale, climactic statement. He says, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So it seems like he's, he's taken these seven ones, you know, this one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith. And it seems like the way that it's written in the Greek is like there's these, a group, a group, and then a kind of a thing if that makes any sense. Uh, just really quickly, and I don't know what you want to do with any of these, I just want to give you five little observations about all of these things that Paul is saying. And I don't want to go into them in depth individually. I'll, we'll do that in a future study. I, I want to just kind of step back and look at the totality or look at the whole of what Paul is saying in verses 4 through 6. So let me just give you a few observations in this. Uh, one, you will notice that the word one shows up seven times. Now, if you understand biblical numbers, seven is the number of completion. Uh, Paul is a rabbi, or, you know, he's trained under one of the greatest rabbis. And as such, this is a common thing that they would think. This is a common thing that they would do. It's like, it's like he's purposely building an argument, and he's listing seven key things. And it seems like, again, he's coming to this idea, it's a completed thing. It's a, it's a full thing. He's talking about the things that we as the body of Christ should be unified in. We have one body. We don't have multiple bodies of Christ. We have one body. Yes, you may have a local body, but it's one church. Does that make sense? That there's not multiple churches, there's not multiple bodies of Christ. There's one body of Christ. Uh, there's, there's one spirit. There's not many spirits. There's one spirit. There is one hope. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. And you start to realize, man, you've got one focus here, 
Paul? Uh-huh. And it's, it's like he's bringing this summary statement of, okay, what are we going to unify on? What is the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? He goes, oh, let me tell you. And he gives you seven things. And it's all emphasized with this idea of one. So, so one interesting observation about all this then is that he's using even just the number seven as this idea of completion. There's this idea in the passage that, and you know this, repetition is a sign of importance. It's a sign of emphasis. It's a sign of, it's a great teaching tool, right? Do you hear this? Seven times in the passage, the number one shows up in Greek. So this is, as, as you're reading along, you have to stop and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why is he so emphasizing this idea of singularity? Why is he so emphasizing this idea of oneness? Why is he emphasizing, well, it's there for emphasis. It's there for an importance. It's there to highlight the fact that he's not talking about divisions. Hey, the Corinthian church was all about division. Some say Paul, some say Apollo, some say, I mean, they, they were all splitting this thing up. Paul says, no, 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 you're, you're getting all that wrong. There is one body. There is one spirit. There is one, 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 one. And it's like he's drawing the focus in for the sake of emphasis. Uh, another interesting observation is that this is all centered around Jesus. This, is, this was so neat to me. Of the seven times he mentions the word one, the middle one is about Jesus. So he mentions one body, right? There's, well, let me look at this again. One body, one spirit, one hope. And then smack dab in the middle is one Lord, Jesus. And then it's one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And you're like, well, what's the importance of that? I don't know. Except, <laughs> except as a rabbi, do you realize this is one of the ways that the rabbis would teach? And they were always hiding things, and they were always emphasizing, and they were always putting things right smack dab in the middle. Uh, they would often use a chiastic structure. Which, don't get lost on that. And this is not a a structure like that, but I do find it interesting that what Paul puts right in the middle is Jesus. Again, you can do whatever you want with all this. Uh, it's also interesting to note uh, that he goes in a weird backwards order from how almost all of the creeds are mentioned. Usually it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Isn't it interesting in this one? He goes, the Spirit, the Son, the Father. I think that's intriguing. Now, it does make sense in the context because if you go back up to verse 3, he's talking about preserving the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he's flowing out of that and then talks about the Spirit and he talks about Jesus and he talks about the Father. But I just find it intriguing that it's in a, it's in a backwards order of this whole thing. Let, let me give you a great quote. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a great preacher in London in yesteryear, uh, says this about the backwards order thing. Uh, he says... That Paul starts with the church as she is. The church is the fellowship of the Spirit, a community of the Spirit. He starts with us exactly where we are and as we were. Then he takes us to a higher point, the church as a body, the head of which is Christ. Finally, the head of Christ is God the Father. So Paul moves us from where we, where we are indwelt by the Spirit to the one and only mediator, Jesus, to God the Father. I just think that's beautiful. That Paul's just saying, whoa, let's just keep on elevating this thing. And then he goes in a backwards order. And maybe just one other quick observation about this. Again, I'm just giving a broad overview of this thing. It's interesting that when you look at each of these seven things, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, do you realize that the reality of all this 
you can't pull off yourself. Which goes back to what Paul's been saying all along through the first three chapters, that this is all about being in Christ. That when you are in Christ, something will flow out of this. Well, what's going to flow out of the in Christ stuff? Well, the unity of the body. Well, what is that going to look like? Oh, we're going to have a singularity of focus. And I can't produce that, folks. I get distracted. I, I, I can't produce unity. I, I, I cannot produce one faith, one baptism, one... And you have to realize that all of this is coming from the reality of being in Christ. Because the moment you say, okay, well, then let me pull this off, you're going to get distracted. Because you can't do this. So I love, I love what Paul's doing here then, is he's talking about this reality of the first three chapters, in Christ! Hey, that you are to be in Christ, and Christ is to be in you. That there is this reality of the worthiness of your life. Well, what is that? Jesus. That there is a calling in your life, and it's Jesus. And if I'm walking in the reality of my calling, what's going to flow out of that? Well, humility. Gentleness. Patience. Love for one another. And I'm going to guard and keep the unity of this body. Well, well what am I guarding then? What am I going to protect? What, what, what am I going to preserve? Paul says, well, what, let me give you seven things that we are focused on as the body of Christ. Well, let, let me give you seven things that we are just all excited about. Let me give you seven things that regardless of your nuances, these are seven things that we should hold fast to as the body of Christ. And he lists these seven things. Does that make any sense? And these seven things, according to Paul, are seven things that we should be just delighted to guard and protect in the body of Christ. Do you realize there's something beautiful about the body of Christ? I know the church has a lot of problems today. <laughs> it has a lot of problems. I know it's not healthy. I get that. There's a lot of spots and blemishes. Hey, I get that too. But do you realize there's something absolutely beautiful about the body of Christ? It's the fact that it's the body of Christ. And we get to share in that phenomenal reality. One of the things that Jesus says multiple times is this idea that the body of Christ should be marked by one specific thing. Now, there's a variety of things that should mark the church. I get that. Paul lists a few here. But Jesus says that there should be at least one primary that defines the church. That there's this beauty of the body. Let me just read this to you. In John 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus says this. He's talking to the disciples in the upper room. And in John 13, Jesus looks at them and says, A new commandment I give to you, love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do you realize that the, the calling, the, the attribute that should define all of our lives as the body of Christ is love? That there is this overwhelming sense of just affection and desire to serve and to meet your needs and to pour our lives out. And we're not talking about a feel-good emotion. You understand? We're not like, oh, oh we got a goosebump. Oh, I'm the part of the body of Christ. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a love that is sacrificial. We're talking about a love that pours itself out. We're talking about a love that is not selfish. We're talking about a love that just seeks to serve. We're talking about a love that just that overlooks those little weird oddities of your life and says, oh, I'm so desperate for you to, to know Jesus more. I just want to encourage you and exhort you and press you into Jesus. And oh, I just want to show you how, how, how can I meet your needs and how can I wash your feet and, and how can I love on you and just how can I? 
Wouldn't it be neat to be in a group full of that? I mean, could you imagine showing up every single week and, you, and you, the moment you show up, everyone is not self-centered. No one is turning inward. Everyone is just saying, whoa, how can I meet your needs and how can I serve on you? And, and hey, how, how can I just, hey, what, what do you need and what can I do? And just, boy, if you got a group of people like that together, you'd probably have to call them the church, wouldn't you? Biblically, at least. And Jesus says that the love that we are to have for one another, get this, he says the same love is the same kind of love that he has loved us with. That's intense, folks. That's not some like, you know, you show up to church, as, as, you know, as we've often joked about, you know, you, you show up, you, you're yelling at the kids on the way in, you finally get out of the car and you have the, ha ha, right? You're, just, you're doing good, yes, amen, we're happy, yes, we're we're doing really good. How are you? Good. Thank you. Good. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. How are you? Right? And we go through these motions that are just so superficial at times. Do we actually have a genuine love for one another? Jesus elevated this to a whole other level in John 17. He's, a few chapters later, he's in, the, he's in the garden. He's praying the high priestly prayer. And listen to what he says, John 17, verse 11. This is, and this is so convicting. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I came to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, get this, that they may be one even as we are one. Do you hear that? Let me give you another one. Verse 20, says just a couple of verses down of John 17, verses 21, 20, 20 and 21, Jesus says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Well, how is the world going to know that Jesus is the Christ? Strangely, the world's going to see the love that we have the unity that we have as the body of Christ. And somehow, the unity and the love that we have for each other is supposed to be on the same level. Ponder this. is on the same level as the Trinity. That the same love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for the Father, the same unity and oneness that they have is the same unity and oneness that we are to have. That's impossible. I mean, we are so marked by division. We are so marked by denominations. We are so marked by dissensions. We, we, we have all of our distinctions. We have, well, how on earth? By the way, there's only one body. So how on earth are we going to have oneness? That's impossible. Jesus, I mean, thank you for that prayer, you know, but seriously, I don't think we as a body of Christ can have the same kind of intimacy and relationship and love and unity that you had with the Father, because how much closer can you get than the triune God? And yet here in our passage, Paul says, oh, that we are to guard and protect, preserve the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. He says, oh, let me tell you all about that. There's one body. There's one spirit. There's one hope of your calling. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says, do you realize that there's something that should mark all of us as the body of Christ? It's a singularity thing. It's a singularity of sight. It's a singularity of focus. It's a singularity of of love. It's a singularity of unity. It's a oneness as the body of Christ. Boy, that sure doesn't sound like the modern church to me. Oh, there's a term that's used throughout the New Testament. And it's that idea of being in one accord, which is not talking about a Honda. It's, talk, it's talking about, you know, oneness, right? When it says they're all gathered in one accord, right? We're not talking about a car. Uh, <clears throat> but there's this idea that they all came together and that they all had one focus. Uh, the word one accord shows up 12 times. 11 of those are just in the book of Acts. But it has this idea of one mind, one accord, one focus, one passion. And of course, you know, some, I won't read them all. Uh, but like Acts 1.14, they all with one mind, that's the word, continually devoted themselves to prayer. Our Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together. They were all in one accord in one place. That they are all just, they had one focus. They had one drive. They had one passion. They just had one thing going. Do you know that that one accord, the oneness, that singularity of focus is one of the marks of the early church? And if you want a great illustration of this, and Paul, and we'll we'll flesh this out in a future study when we get into the one body thing, but, but it's interesting. You realize that if you have one body, that doesn't mean everyone has the same parts. And, and Paul fleshes that out in the book of Corinthians and Romans. He says, do you know how ludicrous it would be if every body part says, I want to be a hand? How are you going to pull that off? Well, I, I want to be the tongue. And one of the beauties of the body is, folks, you are distinct. You are, you are, you are unique. You are. And that's actually one of the beauties of the body because as Paul says, if we were all a hand, well, where would, the, where would the sight be or where would the hearing be? Not all of us can be a hand. Not all of us can be a mouth. Someone has to be the belly button lint. I mean, some, I mean we just, I mean, we all have our unique things. Some, someone's the heart, someone's the kidney, someone's the, we all have our unique purpose and plan. And you can't look at somebody else and go like, well, they have the better gifts. What are you talking about? We need you because we are, have one body. So if you need an illustration of this, my favorite illustration is, uh, uh, is of a symphony. Do you realize, if you ever gone to a symphony, that there is one song being played, and yet there's all these different instruments? You realize that if you went to the symphony and all, all you had was a tuba, it would not be that glorious. If all you had was a flute... It would not be all that glorious. If, if all you had was a cello, it would be really nice. But it wouldn't be a symphony. And isn't it interesting, in a symphony, all, all the different instruments actually play different notes. They, they, they all play their own different little rhythmic thing. They all, they all play their different melodies. And yet, it's as they all come together, there is one triumphant song and message that is being declared. And the beauty of a symphony is in the distinction of the parts. So we need someone to play the tuba. 
We need someone to play the piccolo. We need someone to play the kazoo. We need someone to play. Are you getting this? And so the reality of the body thing of what Paul is talking about is that there is a, in the body, though there is distinctions, there is a unity and a focus. We're not talking about uniformity. We're talking about unity. You realize uniformity is this idea that, okay, everyone has to have the same haircut. Everyone has to same, you know, like the same kind of pizza. Everyone has to... But that's not what we're talking about. We're, hey, you, you can have your haircut. You can have your, your kind of pizza. You, you can have your distinctions. And yet in the midst of the distinctions, we have one focus as the body of Christ. It's interesting, you look at the, the modern day, do you realize the one thing we don't have is one focus? Because what we've done is we've turned to our distinctions and we made our distinctions the priority rather than the priority being Jesus. Hey, and I'm all for end times, and I'm all for baptism, and I'm all for, and whatever your distinction might be, hey, fine, have your distinction. But do you realize, and this is one of the reasons I love what we do here at Ellerslie, is this idea that we, we could have every conservative denomination show up in a semester, and it becomes beautiful. Why? Because, yeah, there's distinctions, and we'll support the distinctions, but we all have one focus and one aim, and it's Jesus Christ. And when the body of Christ, you can have your distinction, but hey, when you, as a body of Christ, come together with one focus and one heart and one throb and one, that changes the world. But it seems like the modern church is all distracted because we don't have one body. We don't have one spirit. We don't have one faith. We don't have one baptism. We have these little eclectic groups and we've gotten distracted by our distinctions and we've lost the, the primacy of Christ. Do you realize what Paul is saying in the passage is that there should be a focus of oneness, a singularity of focus in the body of Christ. But that has to start with the singularity of focus in my life. There's an interesting term, and it's one you've heard before, and you probably have not thought about bringing it into this kind of a context, but it's the term integrity. When I hear the word integrity, I think of like character stuff. All right, I'm, I'm not going to look at pornography. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to murder. Right? I'm going to have integrity. I'm going to get up at the same time every, you know, every day, whatever it is. Do you realize that the idea of integrity, let me give you a definition. There's, there's two ideas. There's this idea of honest, honorable, faithful, true, loyal, and trustworthy. But the other part of integrity, like, this is neat. It means whole and undivided. Undefied, together, undistracted unwilling or unable to be broken into parts. It's one. And the word integrity actually comes from a Latin word, integer. And if you're in math, you, you know what an integer is. It means there's, it cannot be broken into fractions. Or it means it's a thing complete in and of itself. Do you realize what the body of Christ is actually called to is integrity? That it's about a oneness. That you can't break it up into its little pieces. Uh, when I was studying Ephesians chapter 2, it was really intriguing to me. In Ephesians 2, Paul's talking about the church. And he says that in his day, that there, there were these two distinct entities. They were the Jews and there were the Gentiles, right? The pagans. And by the way, that's us. <laughs> and Paul says, do you realize that these two groups just absolutely hated each other? And since Ben loves this statement, I'll, I'll make it again. 
They hated each other so much. Ponder this. This is so insane, insane to me. The mindset, the cultural mindset of the Jew in the days of Jesus and Paul, okay, was that the Jew thought that the only reason why God created the Gentiles was because the Gentiles were going to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Praise the Lord. That's intense. I mean, you don't make friends that way. Hey, what's your name? Bob. You know what? You know, God made you for a very unique purpose. Well, really, what is it? Hell. Like, that's, that's not comforting. And Paul says that these two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, and by the way, Gentiles didn't like the Jews either. But the Jews despised the Gentiles. In fact, you know, the dust, the whole, the whole washing of feet thing, part of the reason you washed your feet is because Gentile dust was being kicked up. And I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to go into my house with Gentile dust potentially on my feet. I mean, they, just, they despised each other, folks. But then listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.14. Jesus himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And if you want to go back, there's a whole bunch of studies from that. But, but what's so phenomenal about this idea is that here are these two groups that hated each other and were marked by division and dissension. And yet what did Jesus do? He removed that barrier and brought them together. And now they are one in Jesus. And as I was studying that through, the application I had for our modern days, do you realize our modern day is marked by distinctions and denominations and all this kind of stuff? But folks, heaven's not going to be that way. There, there are not going to be the distinctions in eternity, folks. And based on Scripture, I can tell you, not one single Baptist is making it to heaven. Praise the Lord. They're not, folks. Not one single Presbyterian is going to make it. Not one single Lutheran is going to make it. Not one single Pentecostal is going to make it. Not one Mennonite is going to make it. Let me keep going through the groups. <laughs> Folks, if you're going to get into eternity and spend time with Jesus, you're going to have to leave all that at the door. Because what Paul is saying is, is that there are not Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There are Christians. Do you know how incredible that is? Apparently not, because <laughs> you're looking at me this way. Folks, he has removed every dividing wall. He's removed every division. He's removed every denominational distinctive. And you can have your distinctive. Fine, you can have your distinctive. But do you realize that when we get into eternity, you're going to have to leave that one at the door? Because the reality is, it's Christian. And the only ones that are making it into heaven are Christians. Not Jewish Christians, not Gentile Christians, not Baptist Christians, not Lutheran Christians, not Methodist Christians, not Mennonite Christians. It's only Christians. That's tough, folks. Well, because I'm, I'm known for my distinctions. What if we were known for Jesus? And what if we as a body of Christ had a singularity of focus and it was all centered on this idea that he is one and therefore we, even though we can have distinctions, I'm not downplaying the distinctions, but 
we in the midst of distinction, you can be the tuba, I'll, I'll be the kazoo. Okay, we, we can all come together and we can have one focus and one heart and one mind and one... Uh, a good friend of mine, we were talking some years ago, and he says, Nathan, I, I, it feels like what a lot of us are doing is like we're all climbing up this mountain, this mountain of God. And whatever my path is, that to me is precious because that's my part of my journey of, of my intimacy with God. And so there's that particular rock structure up there. Man, I love that rock structure. I just talk about that rock structure all the time. He says, but the reality is, is you're on the other side of the mountain. You're climbing up and you're seeing it's the same mountain, but you're seeing a different aspect of the beauty and the glory of God, and you tend to emphasize that rock structure over there. Well, which rock structure is better? Folks, why are we arguing over the rock structure? But he made this interesting insight. He says, isn't it interesting that the higher you climb, the more perspective you get, and the more unified we become because we're getting closer and closer to the pinnacle, the whole focus of this thing. And it's interesting to me that here's all these denominations and we're arguing which one's right and which one's, and, and we have all of our distinctions. Fine, have your distinctions. I don't care about the distinctions. But the reality is, is are you on the mountain? And my guess is we'll get to the top and be like, oh, there's a rock structure on that other side I, I somehow missed. Is it possible, though, for you to have one focus? A singularity of focus and drive? Paul, in talking to the Corinthian church, was deeply concerned about all their divisions. Here they are, they're, they're, they were trying to be known for their distinctions. And oddly, most of our modern denominations are based off of Paul trying to correct the Corinthian distinctions. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It's like half of our, half of our denominations have come out of a Corinthians passage where Paul's like, don't do this. And we're like, yes, let's do that. <laughs> and we, we've gotten distracted and forgot that the primacy of this whole thing, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians is chapter 13, which is all about love. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In ta talking to the church, his overwhelming concern for the Corinthian church was this. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says, I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds will be corrupted or, or led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. Do you realize that there is a simplicity and a purity of devotion to Christ? That we have made this way more complicated than it needs to be. Do you know what the simple, pure devotion to Christ is? Christ. I, I, I know that sounds rather simplistic. But do you know what the key distinctive of the church is supposed to be? Jesus. Do you know what we're to be known by? Jesus. It's not our end time theology. It's, it's not how salvation works. It's not our thoughts on baptism or head coverings or anything else. Not that those are bad or evil. But the reality is the distinctive of the modern church is supposed to be Jesus. And that when this onlooking world looks at us, they should know that there is still a God in the universe. Why? Because they see Jesus in his body and that we are marked by love because he himself is love. I love what Colossians 1.18 says. Listen to this afresh. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. The ESV says it this way, that He, sorry, sorry, it says that in everything, He might be preeminent, which means having first place, having the priority. Wouldn't it be interesting if our distinctive was Jesus? Wouldn't it be interesting if, as Paul is talking about the very thing that should be unifying us, and it's all about this one, oneness idea, that, okay, you can have your distinctives, but do you realize that the modern, or the church, including the modern church, is supposed to have one focus, one drive, one passion, one desire. We are to be in one accord. Yes, you could be the tuba. Yes, you, you could be the piccolo. I'll be the kazoo. But we all have one song that we are singing. It's Jesus. 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 Wouldn't it be neat if our churches were marked by that? Isn't it a sad reality that, that, the, that, the, modern, that the modern world looks at our church today, the modern church, and what they see is bickering and, and infighting and arguing over carpet color and you know, whether we sing hymns or choruses and we're arguing over all these things and what, what we're not marked by is love. We are not marked by Jesus. We're marked by arguing and bickering and fighting. And Wouldn't it be phenomenal if there was a unity of focus in the church? That there was a oneness? One of my favorite passages in Scripture is Romans 11.36. And the reason it's one of my favorite passages is because I think if you want to summarize the totality of the gospel, Romans 11.36 does it really well. I mean, if you want to summarize the totality of all of Scripture and, and God's big thrust and focus through all of Scripture, I think Romans 11.36 really captures it well. And Paul says in Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Do you know what the modern church is supposed to be? The modern church is supposed to be from him, through him, to him for his glory. But the modern church will never be that unless our families are from him, through him, to him, for his glory. But our families will never be that way unless our marriages are from him, through him, to him, for his glory. But our marriages will never be unless we ourselves are from him, through him, to him, for his glory. Which means everything in our lives, how we think and how we sleep and how we live and how we talk and, and our jobs and our relationships. And wouldn't it be interesting if our whole life was marked from him, through him, to him for his glory. That when someone looked at your life, they went, "Woo! the only explanation I have for your life is Jesus. It's like it's from you, from him, and it's, it's being sourced through him, and it's all unto him, man, for his glory. You must be a Christian. Do you realize our, our world needs to see Jesus? Paul says that you and I as a body of Christ have a distinct calling in our life. And one of the realities of that calling is that, that we are to be marked by love for each other, that we should preserve and guard and protect this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, what does that look like? We have to focus. We need a oneness, a singularity of focus which is supposed to be on Jesus. Do you have that? And if not, would you let it start with you? Because my world will never change unless 
my community changes, which means my church has to change, which means my family has to change, which means my marriage has to change, which means I've got to change. And it starts here. And though I want the church, the body of Christ, to have a singularity of focus in our modern day, do you realize I need a singularity of focus? And if you were to look at your life and what you think about and how you spend your time and what you delight in, does Jesus truly have first place? Is he truly preeminent in your life? Is he the reality and the focus and everything that you're centered and built around? We need this. Pray with me. Oh Lord, I, I'm just overwhelmed with a burden for your body. And it seems like we are so caught up in our distinctions and arguing and debating the little nuances that we have, for, we have forgotten the unity. We've forgotten the, the love. We've forgotten the peace. And I understand, Lord, that we need to fight for truth and we need to stand for the integrity of the Word. But Lord, don't let me get so wrapped up in the distinctions that I lose you in the process. Lord, I I long for, for your body, the church, to be wrapped up in one focus. To be wrapped up in love for one another regardless of our distinctions, that we're all playing one song called Jesus, regardless of the instrument that we are playing. But Lord, that needs to start in my life. Lord, I need a singularity of focus. I need a oneness in my life. I I need you to be preeminent. I need you to have first place. Lord, I want a, a simple and pure devotion to you. So Lord, I just want to freshly surrender my life And Lord, may the definition of my life be from you and through you and to you for your glory alone. Lord, don't let me self-protect. Don't let me turn within myself. Lord, could you so fill me with your life? Would you let me so be in Christ? And would your life be so in me that, that my life just bubbles forth the life and the love of Jesus? That it just captures the world around me? Lord, I just admit I can't do this outside of you. So Lord, I just freshly ask that you would do something in and through me that would radically change my life that in turn would turn the world upside down. And we do ask, Jesus, that you would purify your your bride, that you would remove the spots and the blemishes, and you would bring us back as one body, with one spirit, with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one calling, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Lord, may you receive the glory worthy of the suffering that you, that you purchased us with. Love you, Jesus. Give you the praise and the glory in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website 
at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.